Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk. We have honest conversations with under-the-radar folk musicians, and the person we are talking to today is neither under-the-radar nor a folk musician. It's Cindy House. Uh, so happy that you could join me today. We're talking to Katie Tunstall, and before we get into um, what exactly we spoke to her about, let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. All right, Basic Folk receives support from Lindsay Myers at LMNO Management, who encourages listeners to check out the songwriting duo Mick Dean. You can download singles from their forthcoming EP by going to mcdean.co slash basicfolk. KT Tunstall is a, a kind of a chameleon when it comes to genres. She's kind of all over the place including some folk stuff. Every record she puts out, there is uh, an acoustic, at least one or two acoustic songs on it. And then there was her fabulous 2013 album, Invisible Empire Crescent Moon, that was all acoustic. It's so gorgeous um, and definitely one to check out if you haven't heard it already. KT sat down with me at the Girls Just Want a Weekend down in Mexico, Brandy Carlisle's music fest she curated that was all women uh, headlining. Also, I got to say that we were speaking on KT's balcony, so you hear occasional like birds or wind or the ocean or people like driving by, um, but that's that's what was happening. Uh, and it was actually a pretty incredible scene to like be sitting in Mexico on KT Tunstall's balcony talking to KT Tunstall. I think I even had like a beer. It was amazing. We pretty much like get into it like really quickly. Very intense conversation. Uh, we talk about death. We talk about sexuality. We talk about her roots in the folk music world. Really great conversation. One of my favorite people to talk to. Katie, I think, made me a better interviewer when, when we first spoke like years and years ago, just because she is the ultimate definition of a curious person and she's very receptive to conversation and uh, it just makes you feel very smart and cool. I'm going to play a song from KT. She has a song called The River on her latest album, Wax, which is actually Wax is part of a trilogy of albums that she's put out where she's focusing on the mind, body and soul. Wax focuses on the body. Um, And this is a song called The River, but it's an acoustic version of uh, the tune that we're going to hear. And then we'll get to our conversation with KT Tunstall on Basic Folk. I'm holding out for something I don't want to hold on to. I'm reaching out for something. 
KT, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me. My pleasure. It's definitely not a hardship <laughs> to be sitting on the balcony looking at the ocean, seeing yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, we've been we've been kind of messaging on Twitter, just going, see you in Mexico. <laughs> right, yeah, and then we actually made it happen. We did. It's pretty cool. It's great. Um, so you're from Scotland. I am. As I understand, you spent some formative years in Los Angeles. It was one year, but it was a very significant year because it was um, it was the year my memory hit. Like what? How old? As were in, you? I was four years old. So my oh, my wow. father was a physicist, and he got a sabbatical. Uh, for a year to UCLA and at the same time my mom and dad also discovered that there was this clinic in Los Angeles for parents of deaf kids and my younger brother Dan is was born profoundly deaf ironically as I have become a musician mm. and there was a clinic out there called the John Tracy clinic which was basically like a support clinic for parents of deaf children so my mom and Dan would go there a lot during the days my dad was working at UCLA and me and my older brother Joe were put into kindergarten and it was it was really funny too how much older is Joe so Joe's three years older than me okay and it was it was really amusing because um I remember probably 10 years ago uh, an American friend and I were talking about Thanksgiving and I said oh yeah that's that's when American people like eat loads of potato pancakes <laughs> and my friend was like, eh, that's not Thanksgiving, that's Hanukkah. I was like, really? It's like, ha-? And then I, I speak to my mom about it, and I was like, what? Was, did I go to a Jewish kindergarten? And she was like, yes, it was easily the best one around in the valley. And it's like, we lived in Encino. And um, so, yeah, I had no idea that I went to a Jewish kindergarten. That's really funny. Yeah, I know now. You only spent a year in L.A., so I, yeah, I thought it was... Yeah, it was 1979, and it was, okay. um, as I said, it was the year my memory kicked in. So and so it was formation. my first memories of life was yeah. Californian, and I think it's like, you know, a little baby duckling where the first thing it sees, yeah. it thinks is its mother. And I just think that L.A. kind of, and America actually imprinted on me in quite an emotional way. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about your dad. Um, yeah. Your relationship with your late father seems yeah. pretty special. Yeah. Um, is there possibly a way to talk about, I mean, it's like such a big question, like how I'm you and he I'm delighted related. to talk about it because it's a really interesting meeting of souls in this lifetime. And with my dad, it was a really, especially when he passed, it was this really strong feeling that we'd done it before. I don't know what it was. It was just like, I feel like, just had this feeling that we'd been through this scenario maybe in different guises there was a sort of camaraderie feeling between him and I and we definitely pushed each other's buttons but we pushed each other in a way where we both changed quite a lot during our lives so my dad was a completely emotionally stunted mad scientist he thought that um he thought that undergraduates were just the biggest waste of university money (laughs) it was just like all he really cared about was research. I mean, yeah. and he was kidding. He loved teaching and he really enjoyed, he really enjoyed what, you know, especially those students that would kind of stick out to him and he knew they were going to go on and do, do other things. But the thing that really impressed me about my dad with his work was I remember him explaining to me that he was involved. He was talking about how frustrating it was that the funding was getting less and less 
And so, you know, funding for research projects was only going to last like five years, where in the past it would have lasted 50, you know. And he said that um, many of the experiments that he was... Uh, he worked in nuclear magnetic resonance. I sound like I know what I'm talking about. I don't. Basically, he was part of the movement towards MRI machines and um, low low temperature magnetic shit. <laughs> I, know. Um, I remember him saying to me, and it really resonated with me on a creative level as well, which I think physics and music are very interesting how they kind of cross over each other well music is physics exactly it's just this it's the beautiful sort of spiritual meeting point of of the creative brain and science and um especially when you get into the quantum stuff i really don't have a very extreme grasp on it at all it's just i love the kind of magical bits <laughs> but dad um i remember him talking about being involved in these experiments where he would never expect to see the outcome and i was like what like, but you're dedicating your life to stuff where you know for sure that you're never going to know the answer to this stuff. And it's what you're spending your existence putting energy into. And he's like, yeah, because I understand it's going to take 100 years for human beings to work out the answer to this, unless something extraordinary happens. But the likelihood is it's going to be way past the end of my lifetime when people work out what the answers to these problems are. Mm. And I just thought that was amazing just this sort of zen like lack of attachment to the actual outcome of something and getting the answer but just it feeling like enough purpose to be part of that exploration yeah. you know so I, I'm wondering how um, your relationship is with death these days based mm. on you know your father passed away and, and I've we've talked a little bit before how mm. you've said that our western relationship is death with death is far from mature. So mm. what are you thinking about just, death these days? It just, it's always just, well, not always, but since I've kind of grown as an adult, it just seems so absurd that we have such a dysfunctional relationship with death where I see other cultures in other parts of the world managing it with so much more grace and celebration and openness and I mean, for fuck's sake, at least some expectancy of it. Right. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, still yeah. somehow <laughs> hoping it's not going to happen. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, and also this sort of uh, pressure to just be extremely sad and nothing else. It's like, you know, we're somehow sad about death. About mean, someone yeah. dying. It's like that. It's somehow disrespectful to have fun at a funeral. Mm. or to laugh or to smile or yeah. to really do whatever you want but there's this kind of religiously kind of indoctrinated rule that you should just be a hundred percent devastated regardless mm. of how you actually feel and of course we will always very often be 100 percent devastated but i think that the really cool thing for us to learn from other cultures is that it's not a singular feeling when someone passes and it, it can feel very singular in the moment and it changes all the time. But I mean, I was very lucky with my dad because first of all, he should have died like 10 times before he actually died. He like fatally electrocuted himself in his lab. He had throat cancer and was told he had a, a month to live and he lived another 15 years. He had skin cancer. He was not a particularly 
discerning guy when it came to safety mm. <laughs> as um, many of my fans will know when I've described the games that he used to play with me and my brother with liquid nitrogen when we were small <laughs> um, so he was a bit of a daredevil he was a rock climber he'd had quite a few college friends die on crazy climbs and and he was an old man, he had Parkinson's, he'd had a really bad bike accident before he died, so we knew that he wasn't going to last for a lot longer. He died before we thought that he would, but mm. he was ready to go when he went, and and that's the correct order. The old man died. It, it, really, it really made me understand how shocking it must be to have someone just taken out of the blue with no warning, and you haven't had a chance to say things that you want to say. Like, right. Dad and I really made great peace right. with one another before he went away. All right, let's talk about something else. Yeah. The one thing I do want to share with you, which was really fascinating when, as we're talking about death, which okay. I do find really fascinating and I don't find particularly morbid to talk about, um, was that my dad had always, because he was a scientist and a physicist, he'd kind of instilled that idea of stardust that we're all kind of recycled and nothing is really new. Everything is produced from what exists already and energy is energy and once someone dies the energy doesn't die the yeah. energy just transmutes well, into something else and the physical stuff breaks down and f as far as I'm concerned what a fucking honor to become soil <laughs> for something to grow in right but my dad had always had you know it was this we, we go back to where we came from yeah, yeah. you know which is I mean my god you don't get more spiritual than that really it's funny I had a question about yeah your dad saying so, you recycled it. and then I'd written this album called Invisible Empire Crescent Moon. It was my fourth record. And, and my favorite. Oh, thank record. you, Cindy. <laughs> Cheers. But it was in two halves. So the first half, Invisible Empire, was before my dad passed and I got divorced. And the second half was afterwards. But there was these really weird fortune-telling songs on the first half that you would think must be written after this stuff had happened. But they were written before as if the... Sort of deep subconscious self knew what was coming it mm. was so strange and one of the songs I wrote before my dad died was called Carried which is one of my favourites from the record mm. and it's about who is the person who's going to take you on your final journey because you cannot take yourself to where you want to be buried so three months after writing that song I literally find myself in this position leaving my mum's flat in Bath she didn't want to keep my dad's ashes in the house. She was just, it was upsetting for her and I was happy to take them. I've literally found myself walking through the town centre of Bath with my dad in my backpack, in a box. It was so weird and not, I, I didn't find it a negative feeling. It was just so bizarre that I'd written about this exact moment and then I'm sitting on the train with my dad on my lap, in the backpack, in a bag, in a box. And I'd asked the woman in the, in the funeral home just so that my mum knew if she opened it what was in there. And she said, oh, it's, a, it's actually a clear bag with his ashes in inside a nice wooden box. And I'm sitting on the train just going, I have to look. I can't, <laughs> like, I want to know what this looks like. It's too intriguing. I want to see it. And so I'm like looking around at people in the but They have no idea what I'm looking at, you know? So I open the bag and I open the box and there's this clear bag and it's just this beautiful substance that looks like a coral beach. It's like very, very pale sand with kind of what looks like coral, which I guess is bone. 
and it was just this amazing sense of wonder that it wasn't just this, you know, it wasn't just words saying that it's dust. It really is dust. Wow. It becomes other stuff. Crazy. Yeah. I want to talk about piano and guitar. Yes. So, so Chrissy Hind, who I was lucky enough to go on tour with recently, uh, she was talking about tits, and she said, <laughs> I got great tits for playing guitar. And she goes, if, you, if you're born with the big tits, stick to piano. <laughs> <laughs> Can you think of, like, a big-breasted piano player? I guess Nina Simone probably had pretty big boobs, she I would imagine. Oh, is she the only one? Who else? Did Aretha Franklin play the piano? Yes. She did. She definitely well. had big boobs. Yeah. I don't think I'm like, um, Tori Amos does not. I cannot, I cannot recall Carol King's cup size straight off the, uh-huh. be- off the top of my head. She always wore quite loose clothing. Right. So <laughs> right. <laughs> I, so it kind of leaves it to the imagination. Imagine that, Cindy. Imagine <laughs> leaving something to the imagination in 2019. Um, but you were a pianist when you... I was a would pianist. Would you call yourself a piano prodigy? Yes, I started as a piano prodigy. <laughs> I definitely didn't fucking end as one. Um I, I started piano at four, and my parents, I wasn't from a, my mom actually did play piano, but she she just, I think, was too busy to keep at it. But she wasn't a bad piano player, she'd learn. But she didn't play very often on my piano once I got one, I think because she couldn't get me off it, actually. But my piano teacher at school, when I first started school as a pianist, I just thought this machine was just insanely cool, and I asked for one immediately. And... My mum and dad got me this janky old upright secondhand piano, which I loved, which also had really scary faces in the wood. It was like lacquered wood. And it had these faces, which used to kind of freak me out. And I still, I could, I could draw it for you now. It was just this repeat pattern on the wood. Um, but uh, yeah, so I did my first exam and I'd forgotten this, but I, my, my piano teacher actually came to a gig recently, Janet Schmidt, and I hadn't seen her for a long time. And she reminded me that for my, I think it was my grade one, so I'm four years old, I took my colouring book to the exam instead of my music. Oops. And I sat down and I'm like colouring and she's like, where's your music book? I said, oh, it's okay. I don't need it. And I went in and got like 149 out of 150 oh my God. on distinction on my exam. And I was, I basically did really well and... And then this kind of slow burn downward trajectory mm. kicked in until I nearly failed grade five when I was 16. And thankfully, that was at the same time that I found the guitar. I just wasn't interested in, yeah. in training. Do you ever think that, like, I mean, in terms of, like, we're all thinking about death and past lives. Yeah. If, I mean, I don't know if you believe in past lives, but if there was, like, a piano player so. in your past life. I believe, I'm not sure I believe in, I don't know. I believe in the energy of it. Mm. I believe in some sort of shared cell memory of past experience. And I don't know if that's singular or mm. if that's like some collective thing, but I certainly believe it's possible to have memory of something else yeah. that's happened before. I just think it's so interesting yeah. that you were such a star at the piano, then you were just like, Bramp, and then yeah, you just, I just hit the guitar it and was, I guess, came back. I guess I was musical rather than a pianist. Um, so I'm interested, 
like when you were a little kid, yeah, where was the place that you felt the most like yourself and the most free? Um, I think the place I felt most free as a young kid was in the dark in my garden. And I used to go out and play in the garden in St. Andrews in Scotland. It was my favorite thing. I'd go out and play at dusk. And I loved playing outside as it got dark and just being, we had this kind of back garden, which was a lawn. And then there was loads of trees and bushes at the back and a hedge and then loads of fields behind it. I just used to love being hidden in the bush like a little fucking wolf baby. And I loved looking at the house from a distance and seeing all the lights on. And it looked really cozy, but I was in the bushes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. But you were it alone. sounds weird, but I loved it. Yeah. I loved feeling feral. Yeah. I loved feeling... I loved... There was this There was this program called Stig of the Dump. I don't know if you had that here. I don't think you did, but it was basically about this little boy, orphan boy, who lived in a garbage heap. And he was called Stig. Stig of the Dump. Stig of the Dump. And this, this kind of kid who lived in a cul-de-sac, you know, in a nice, with a nice family, discovers Stig and will go and kind of play with Stig in the dump and they make windows out of old bottles and they... It was just super cool. I loved that story. I loved... I mean, favourite kids' book was Where the Wild Things Are. I just always had mm. this... beautiful relationship with wildness as a kid. I've just And we went camping a lot when I was a kid. We didn't do hotels and stuff. We'd go skiing yeah, yeah. and we'd... From a very young age, I was really into kind of nomadic life. I loved that. But don't you, don't you think that the place where you felt exactly what you're describing totally is who you are as a person? Like never you, thought of that. Like but... you went, you go through life, and like recently, our conversations and the interviews I've read, you thought like I just wanted people around me all the time. I didn't yeah. want to be alone. But now you're in this place yeah. where you're like, I love alone time. It's an amazing, it's like amazing back, shift. Back to where you were. Yeah. In the yeah. garden. Yeah, I think so. I've not even thought about that. It's a, you make a great psychologist, Cindy. <laughs> um, it's basically what you are. Yeah. Um, well, of no, course, I, I think so. But I think, you know, if I, if I was talking to any, anyone who was asking about self-discovery, that is probably the most profound thing that's happened to me is, and it's really about the relationship with yourself and enjoying time with yourself. Mm. And you don't want to run away from that, which is what I was doing before and going through the work and asking the difficult questions, but getting to a place where you, absolutely love being on your own and yeah. I just I took myself I regularly take myself out on dates when I can with myself and I had such a good date night with myself the other night where I was in London and I went to see Colette it's the new Kira Knightley movie I just had such a good time <laughs> and I was like you know at the counter just going shall we buy ourselves some chocolates <laughs> I think we shall <laughs> It's like Gollum goes to the movies. <laughs> You're just like fingering yeah. your golden ring. Exactly. That's funny. Shall we get sis some chocolates? <laughs> That's funny. But so, I, I think from a creative point of view as well, like that clarity, just that space is um, incredibly important. Like Suddenly I See was a song that I wrote that completely changed my life. And... Really. That's the I, Patty, Patty Smith. The Patty Smith, yeah, about the horses album cover. Um, and I wrote the song in half an hour. I mean, it's just like 30 minutes that changes your existence in the world. And It's wild. 
yeah, it's wild. But also there was enormous amounts of space either side of that half hour for me to think, to process, to to just build ideas. And I think that that's what I suffered from after the success hitting was I was just filling all of that space with distraction. And I just, there wasn't much space to allow anything to grow. Yeah. It's just funny how, you know, that must have hit you so hard. Yeah, it's I very mean, I'm still really processing it. And I'm really, I'm really finding so much joy in my friendship with Maggie Rogers. We met through uh, my friend Lauren Glucksman, who works with Katy Perry's lot. And, um, Lauren actually started as my March girl when she was 16. She came on tour and her parents vetted me and we've been incredibly close ever since. (laughs) And then it turned out that my very, very dear friend, Lizzie Goodman, writer of Meet Me in the Bathroom, was a great book, read it if you haven't read it. Um, (laughs) Maggie was actually an intern for Lizzie and was transcribing that book for a couple of years. And so there's all these, you know, connections of people who know each other. That's so great. Um, but Maggie is a total unicorn. She's just a one-off and it's been really healing for me actually to be friends with her and watch her basically handle extremely deftly and gracefully what I think I actually handled really badly mm. uh, because I didn't know myself and I wasn't, she's, a, she's an incredibly streetwise self-aware old being. Yeah. And, and you, you know, if, if I was a bitter person and if I wasn't mentally, if I hadn't done my mental housework, it would be very easy to watch someone like Maggie and be jealous and be annoyed at myself. That You know, I remember the conversation where my manager and my booking agent said, we should go into arena shows. And I said, no, don't want to do that. That's not what my music is about. My music is about connecting with people in small places. It has to stay intimate. And now I'm just like, you fucking dick. Like... <laughs> It would have been amazing. And of course she would have connected. And I probably won't get the opportunity to do that again. So it's something I really kick myself about. Is mm. I was afraid. I was afraid of fame. I was yeah. afraid of being rich. I was afraid yeah. of everyone looking at me, you know? Yeah, I have a friend who we we have good conversations. And I'm like, it sounds like you're afraid of failure. He's like, yes, and also success. I was really, <laughs> really scared of the amount of success I was having. It was quite terrifying mm. because I wasn't Did you have anyone, for that. anyone to around you to no, guide I you? No, I didn't have, I didn't know anyone else who had been through that or was going through that. And it was also 2004. It was really different yeah. than it is now. It was a it was very really shifting different. world yeah. back then. Yeah. Nora Jones had success and that was kind of it. It was all boy indie rock bands. Yeah. So Maggie's been an amazing, joyful presence in my life where I'm just like cheerleading her every step and just, it's really, um, I'm really, I'm proud of myself that I can look upon someone who's in that situation and cheer. Yeah, I get that. Totally. Because, you know, it's so easy to be. It's And I've been there. I've been there where I went through a couple of years of just going, oh my God, I'm becoming that person, that horrible, haggy old musician just going, I should have had this and I should have had that. Yeah. Shut up. Like, look at what you have. And and also, I I was really lucky that I went on tour with Simple Minds who are just, their family now to me, Jim and Charlie, amazing. And I was talking a little bit 
to Jim Kerr about it, and she's like, "How do you handle these, these, this roller coaster, these pitfalls of, and these troughs of, you know?" I just had to. I was here. I was here for this gig, and I had to cancel a show in Mexico City that I was meant to play. I think today because it mm. just didn't sell any tickets. Um, and people often like post this bullshit about you know logistical reasons we can't do the show. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to tell people that I can't come and play because no one bought any tickets. I mean, they, there was some great fans, and I'm so sorry to them that they did. But we sold like a hundred tickets for a two thousand cap venue, Oof. and yeah. I can't do it. It's just it means I'll never come back because the promoter won't have me and didn't make any money, and the show would feel shitty because there's no one there. And I remember speaking to Jim about it, and he said, "Look, we were in a splitter van a few years ago, driving past a stadium in Scotland that we had sold out, and we were on our way to a pub that was a quarter of a mile away to play a show, because that's where we were playing now." And he said, "That's when you find out whether you actually really want to do it or not." And we、mm. did, and now they're back to playing great big shows again. And, That meant a lot. It was remembering the journey to get there in the、yeah. first place,、um, and I think it's a bit of a rude awakening as well. Where you're just like, it's not a fucking easy job, and just because you've been successful once, it doesn't mean it's an easy job. It's not. It's not just going to be handed to you on a plate for the rest of your life. And I think that's what I didn't understand. And with a young artist asking me advice, that's what I would tell them: is, is don't think this is going to just be like this, always. And always try something before saying no. I would definitely say that. Yeah. So, But you know, at the same time, no regrets. I made decisions at the time for a reason, and you have to respect your your own instincts and your gut for why you've done stuff. It's self preservation. Definitely. A lot of the time too. Yeah, because you could make a decision that goes against your gut and be wrong. Yeah, and like and it had an awful、it. time. You know. Yeah.、This. All right. Is it okay to switch gears and talk about sexuality? Yes, of course.、Right. We should. It would be remiss of us not to talk I mean, about sexuality at Brandy Carlisle's weekend. Yes, it would、totally. be rude. So many、even. gays here. <laughs>、um, you identify as a heterosexual, but it seems like not black and white for you. And no, you've talked about how you've quote unquote had relationships、yeah. with girls in the past. Also, you've said there's less angst in younger people around sexuality. Oh well, I hope there is. I'm I'm saying that because that's kind of what I read. But、right. I don't believe everything I read. So I would just hope that、um, that younger kids feel that idea of fluidity、mm. much more than we did. Well, it seems like you, in reading about this, you have this. It, it seems as though you relate to younger genera- generations when it comes to fluidity. I also relate to, I guess, to gay people, because I've had extremely deep and emotional feelings for women that I've had relationships with.、Um, I haven't ended up falling in love with a woman to the point where I was in a long-term relationship, but I hundred percent believe that I could have done. It's and for me, it's just about a person. It's meeting a person.、Mm-hmm. It's not about meeting a penis or a vagina that you like. It's、yeah. about meeting a a person. But what do you think about like? I'm thinking about my own experience and not coming out until late twenties,、mm. and thinking that there's nobody that I see in the media reflected 
that is like me. Like if mm. Ellen Page had come out in, yeah. you know, 10 years before, I might have been like, oh, there's somebody I relate yeah. to. I feel there is a really positive shift happening now where I think there's safety in numbers, right? And I feel like there, totally. there is a growing support network so that people in positions of a public nature are able to start coming out more safely. But it's still a huge problem. I've always felt a disgust at, and a disbelief and a confusion as why to anyone gives a shit. Why, why does it bother you? who that stranger decides to love or have sex with or live with mm. or marry. It literally makes no difference to your life. So why spend your energy pushing a message of hatred outwards from you towards that person to try and make other people point hatred towards that person? Mm -hmm. I don't understand why you would want to spend your time doing that. So you have this incredible energy, not just Thank on you. stage, but off stage. Um, it seems as though you are tirelessly connecting to your fans in a really unique way. Um, and I'm wondering where that energy comes from. I was talking about it just today with a very close friend and um, I was talking about the disconnect for me between how I feel when I'm on stage and how I feel when I'm not on stage, um, which has always been confusing and a bit difficult because I feel almost more myself on stage than I do off it. I feel so free and so unshackled when I'm on stage. And I mean, more and more as I get older, I'm just zero fucks on stage. I just <laughs> could not. I, the only thing that bothers me on stage is if technical stuff happens and I can't do the show properly. Mm. But if I make mistakes, bring it on. It's all good. It's just part of the evening. And I just have so much fun. And I also just feel incredibly powerful, not just because I have a microphone and, you know, however many thousands of people in front of me, but I can steer energy when I'm on stage and I always steer it positively. And it's a really amazing thing to be able to wield as positive energy and just know that you're not just making people feel good and giving them a good time, it's mm. actually making them think. And as a fan of music and watching music, you can literally change during a show. It can actually be a finger click moment where your life can change and mm. your idea of yourself can change and things that seemed impossible can become entirely possible in your mind because they just music just opens you up in a way that's amazing. Then I step off the stage and I suddenly, the world is, I feel different. I don't find it particularly easy being in big groups of people. I'm much better just one-on-one. -on -one. That's the other thing I find since I've sort of got to know myself is I'm not actually a very sociable person. Really? Yeah, I just, I, I, I really love spending time with my friends, but it's got to be a really fucking good party to get me to a party now. I just... <laughs> It's, I mean, this is a pretty good part. This is yeah. an amazing part. <laughs> so you're in the middle of recent, releasing a trilogy. Yeah. Kin, about the soul, Wax, about the body, the future album, about the mind. Yeah. And I was wondering if you can talk about your current relationship with each of those elements, particularly with Wax yeah. being about the body. 
So usually if you're going to do a trilogy, you would actually have that idea before you started making it, which I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, made, I made part one first. And, um, George Lucas. Is that what he did? did I don't he? know. No. I, he, surely he knew what he was He had he was a plan, doing. I think. It's too good for him to not have a plan. <laughs> um, I, uh, I made Kin unexpectedly. I thought I was going to take... I, I was actually expecting to take like a 10-year hiatus from making records because after my dad passed and I got divorced, I was just totally off making records I was not interested in it at mm. all um, I wanted to do something else and I uh, was training in film com- composition scoring and uh, I just listened to too much Fleetwood Mac and Tom Petty driving my car in LA and it just happened and I just started writing these really big pop choruses and I think if I'd started writing stuff like the fourth record that was kind of more introspective folk music I probably wouldn't have stopped what I was doing and I probably wouldn't have released a record but the world was turning quite dark at that time it was it was not good and I was writing these really triumphant songs about overcoming very difficult shit and I thought actually this record feels useful in the climate right now it feels like I would be adding something positive and so I just thought okay and then if I decide to do something, I basically go completely gung-ho. And meditation had been part of my uh, rehab of my soul <laughs> after the Matrix slime pod. <laughs> but um, I was meditating on tour. And I just had an incredibly strong vision. Um, I was in Nashville. Came to and just went, it's, it's got to be a trilogy. So soul, it's all about soul. I knew the next record I wanted to make would be kind of electric guitar driven, which for me is the most physical instrument you could play. The body. And I wanted to make something sexual, something visceral and something I hadn't done before. I mean, I always get a little feeling of what a record's gonna be before I make it. And I knew that that's what this one was. Riffs and dirt and grit and realness. And then it just made sense that if that would be the body one, then I would make a mind record, which is coming next. And I've already started writing, but I'm very excited to get going on it. It's a really fascinating subject. So I imagine that musically it will be a lot of rhythm and a lot of patterns and a lot of kind of um, probably more percussive, maybe. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> that makes sense for you, yeah. for percussiveness. Yeah. Um, and I just love the, you know... I. First of all, love the idea of a, a longer arc of work. You know, I think this 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 move to TV series as an alternative to film is really exciting. Like some of the work that's coming out of TV is just incredible. Where have you, can... you got a gig in TV? No, I just just the just as a fan of oh, experiencing see. episodic, you know huge arcing storylines and so I was really excited to make something bigger than one album mm. um, so I'm really excited how it will feel finishing the next one and having this trilogy all together and it's just also looking at the, the nature of what I do with those three elements that the soul experiences life it's translated by the brain and then the body expresses it you know, it's this kind of, uh, you know, the trinity of making something from nothing mm. and and you make something that could last forever. Well, not forever, but, you know.
So this is a folk podcast. Mm. So can we talk about your relationship to folk music, whether yeah. traditional Scottish folk music, if yeah. you had an experience with that? So folk music is absolutely my roots. That's where I come from. I The first musicians I met were Scottish folk musicians. Um, outsider folk. It was the equivalent of outsider art. They were very weird, oddball, kind of punk folk artists that were fiddling a little bit with electronics as well as electronica as well as uh, regular folk but the the first band I joined was this guy called King Creosote who's an amazing Scottish folk artist who's now thankfully very celebrated um, but he grew up in my hometown and he was very much the kind of gaudy of my little Scottish town because he I mean he's probably recorded 60 albums at this point he's wow. 10 years older than me we met when I was 16 and he was 26 and he came to my very first gig in a pub and pretty much straight away said do you want to join my band and they were called the Scooby-Doo Orchestra but it was spelt Gaelic D-U-B-H and uh, it was a it was an original bluegrass band kind of Kaylee stroke bluegrass band and that's where I was from was that scene of busking and playing open mic nights and um, just you're never walking around without your guitar on your back basically right Troubadour. And then you busked on the Yeah, streets. so I started, but I started actually, when I started guitar, I started on a, on a Spanish nylon string and mm-hmm. I was started picking style. Um, and busking was a, quite a rude awakening because I realized that you were never going to make any money picking on a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I really, I graduated pretty quickly to um, using a pick and strumming uh, and playing a steel string. And busking was really where I became a one-woman band, where I just, I realized my deep affinity with rhythm and beats. Mm. And that was always going to be a really important part of my sound. And But I think it's really good for me to strip back. And last night was great here at the at the Girls Just Want a Weekend uh, Brandy and Friends show, so it was. I'm sitting next to Sean Colvin, who I've not heard. Oh my god! My god, how about that? That was a religious experience. <laughs> I was just on stage, forgetting I was on stage, <laughs> looking at this woman, just going, "Jesus Christ, you're amazing!" Indigo Girls, Marin Morris, Sean Colvin, Brandy, um, and that's folk music. We were just all sitting, telling stories, playing some of our own songs with just guitars and playing a few covers that were inspiring. And it's just that, And I mean, folk music is the kind of mothership for me in terms of storytelling. And it's really interesting when you kind of put folk music up against issues of plagiarism because folk music is kind of plagiarism in nature. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just like, it's storytelling and and the retelling of stories and the and the modulation of stories and the addition of new verses to old old tales and mm. and I love I'm a huge Beck fan and I probably know his material as a whole body of work better than anyone else's that that I'm I'm a fan of and he's a really great example of a modern folk artist I think because you know there's still that very real uh, played sound to what he does no matter how much production he puts on top of it but you can listen to sea change and you, you can just hear all the Gainsbourg strings in there you can hear all the Nick Drake 
you know, mm. style melodies and vocal riffs. He's got like Herbie Hancock riffs in there. He's constantly borrowing. I mean, he's not just borrowing. He's like taking. Mm. But he genuinely makes something brilliant and original to the point where you would be honored if Beck would use something of yours and turn it into something new. And I think that's the key, isn't it? It's like homage is a very important part of musical heritage. It's a very important part of musical progression. But do something good. Like, don't, you know, don't just take it because your stuff's shit and you can't think of anything better. But the storytelling aspect of folk music is really important, I think, in that conversation. That you can't, you can't just say that things can't be the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's illegal. And that's not how music works. That's not how human brains work. But yeah, don't use it as your excuse because you can't write a fucking song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Katie Tunsil, thank you so much. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's been an honor. Gracias. Again, let me set the scene for you in this interview. It's like so incredible. Down in Mexico, sitting on Katie Tunstall's balcony, like hearing those Mexico birds that like they were so the the birds down there are so funny because they just kind of like scream at each other all day it's hilarious and i'm really glad that they got picked up uh during this interview thanks again to katie tunstall for being so generous with her time and uh just being so open um to sharing and uh yeah it's pretty incredible i will never forget it and thank you for listening to basic folk also want to thank our sponsors Okay, Basic Folk is supported by Lindsay Myers from LMNO Management, who suggests that if you like this podcast, you'd also like the band Tina and Her Pony. You can check them out on your preferred streaming platform or follow them at Tina and Her Pony on Facebook and Instagram. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk, 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, wiupfm.org. Laura McCarthy produces Basic Folk and want to say thank you to Alex Stanton, who does our little musical interludes uh, for Basic Folk. And please subscribe if you have not already subscribed and review on iTunes. It's very helpful And uh, I would be so grateful if you did. You can also check out all of the Basic Folk interviews wherever you get your podcast or you go to cindyhouse.net. And we will see you next week. All right. Bye.